We're going to dig into 1 Chronicles 29 again, so please do turn in your Bibles to page 574. We're just coming to the end, I think we just probably have one more in this next week, and um, the essence of what it's been about is that David has called the people of Israel to build the temple, the first temple that the Israelites built, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, a magnificent structure. And it represented the best of what Israel had to offer in terms of their worship to God, their devotion to Him. It was a truly remarkable accomplishment. But it was always meant to be temporary. God had other things in mind, and He wanted His church to become His temple. In other words, the place where you meet with God would no longer be a building in Jerusalem where you pay however many hundreds or thousands of pounds to get there. It's a bit cheaper these days with EasyJet, but that's beside the point. He wanted it to be his church, his temple in the world, in every people group and every place on the planet representing the worship of God and his presence on this earth. But what we see in terms of the patterns of how the temple came into being and the, the heart and the intent that lay behind its building very much mirror what Christ wants to be expressed in the building of his church. So we've been looking at things like the call to consecration, um, generosity, and worship, and all these things which were part of what happened in this chapter and what the Israelites expressed. And today we're going to move on and think a little bit about um, holiness. And uh, you'll see why in a minute. But let's read together from, I'll read from verse 14, but first just... Remember the question that David asked everybody in verse 5. He said, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? It's the same question that Jesus is asking every one of you. It's the same question. Jesus wants not less devotion than what the Israelites could muster in the building of the temple. He wants more. We stand on the other side of the cross. We stand in the knowledge that Christ has poured out his blood for us, I think Jesus, even more than David, can can demand this of us. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord? So the people respond well, and they start to give, and they give so with joy and with passion and delight for the building of the temple. Then we pick up in verse 14. David is halfway through a prayer here. He says to God, Who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house, for your holy name, comes from your hand, and is all your own. Now these are the verses we're going to look at from verse 17. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, 
that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. It's common these days for Christians to talk about the church and say in a kind of an effort to perhaps sound humble or um, not to sound boastful before people to say that the church is, is not any better than, than the world. You know, we, we say that, we're very quick to say that when we talk to, especially people who are not Christians, about sin and about the call to repentance and how God wants to make you his own. We'll very quickly add to that, listen, we're not saying we're better. We're not saying that we're any better than the world around us. And I think it's well intended. I think it's um, an effort, rightly, to want to portray humility about ourselves because even if you are saved and even if you have changed, you know it was the work of God in you. And I also think that it, it's, it's not wanting to come across like we're boasting um, if we see uh, wonderful things happening in God's people and in the churches of which we're a part. But even if we say these things, the reality is that God wants his church to be radically different from the world in which it's situated. He wants his church to be extraordinarily different. You see this coming through all the way through the New Testament. But I think of places like in Matthew 5 where Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's saying, of course, that his people, the church, ought to have a salty-like purity and something radically distinct from the world in which we're placed. And it ought to then have an effect on the world, of course, as well. I think also verses like these in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, these are really hard words he writes here. And I want you to bear with me as we read on. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying that there's no place for sin within God's kingdom. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, this is the way you lived when you didn't know Jesus. But now that you have come to know Jesus, he has washed you. And he continually is washing you and changing you and transforming you. Paul would say, and be very quick to say, the churches that I'm building and which God delights in are are different from the world in which they're placed. They have to be. I think also verses like these in in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2, um, verses 11 and 12, we read them last week. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, people who don't really belong on this planet. You're kind of foreigners in a foreign land. He says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, all the stuff that rages inside you, what you're tempted to indulge, he says you need to hold back. That's what it means to be a Christian, partly. 
He says, these things wage war against your soul. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there he gives us another slant. He says, part of the reason, it's like what Jesus was saying about salt and light. Part of the reason the church is meant to be different is that people are meant to look at the church and see something remarkable happening there in the lives of the people in it. So when we think and talk about holiness, we're talking about something which is right at the center of God's plan for his people. I wanted us to think then deeply about this subject as we um, are working through this series, because in many ways what we're trying to do is put down some key core convictions that are foundational to what it means to build a church that Christ delights in. And I think this is quite possibly the most important thing of all, that it be a holy church. Now, what does it mean for a church to be holy? I think that there are facets of that that have to do with the corporate togetherness of what it means, what, what kind of a church you're building. Jesus wrote to um, the, the churches in Revelation. He, spoke, he addressed his letters to the spirit of the church in such and such a place. And it kind of captures, or the messenger of the church in such and such a place, and it captures this idea that every church has its own particular characteristics and qualities. That's partly to do with the beliefs in the church, whether they're beliefs that God wants you to hold. It's also to do with the activities of that church and the spiritual temperature of that church. When you walk into different churches, you know, don't you, very often whether they're blazing hot for Christ or whether they're just going through the motions. And that temperature affects you, doesn't it? Is it a holy church? Is it a church that desires and pursues Christ above everything? So there's a kind of a corporate aspect to this, but there's also the individual aspect to this. Which is why I want to ask you, are you seeking to live a holy life for Christ? We're all part, as I've been saying repeatedly, we are living stones being put in place to be a part of God's spiritual temple. And as such, it's so vital that every stone has integrity, that it's solid, that it is built on Christ, and that it is pursuing holiness and wants to live a life of purity for Him. Now, I hope then that you'll agree with me that this subject is so vital, so central, so important. But one of the questions that we need to ask and which we're going to meditate on today is how we can, as Christians, be motivated to pursue holiness. Because I know that even if you feel caught in rapturous delight in Christ when you are worshipping here together, I know that the minute you go home, other things can begin to crowd in. And temptations, not least, but also just distractions. And all these things push you and from side to side and often pull you away from Jesus. What is it that the Bible gives us as motivation for holiness? And I have to ask this question especially in the light of what we know the gospel message is. I don't know if you're a Christian or not, but the heart of Christianity is this, that God doesn't look for the righteous to be part of his kingdom. He doesn't look around and find the people who are good to put them into his kingdom. He rather looks around, as Jesus said, for the sick, for people who know that they are sick, 
that know they need healing. Because Christ poured out his blood and gave his body for the healing of the world. Now, if that's the message that God saves us and that it's a free gift, that he, he gives us salvation, it, it suddenly takes out something of the need for you to live a godly life. It would seem that way, doesn't it? And whenever a person has truly understood Christianity in distinction from all the other religions of the world, the next question they will always ask is, well, then does it matter how I live? If you haven't ever asked that question, then you probably haven't understood the gospel in the first place. And I want to show you that it's, not, it's a more complicated answer than you might initially assume. What is the motivation in the Bible for holy living then? This is the question we're asking. And I want to put it to you today that the big answer to this question is this. That God wants you to pursue holiness for his pleasure and delight. God wants you to pursue a holy life in order to please him. Or if we want to put it more bluntly in colloquial, God wants you to live in such a way that makes him happy. That's what the Bible teaches. Let me show you this. I remember the first time that someone said this to me. And use this language about living to please God. And I was a little bit taken aback by it for a few reasons. One reason was that it didn't really seem to sit with my view of God. Because when you have a big view of the holiness of God and how much greater he is. We were praying this way. We were singing this way. We began this way. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. When you have an enormous view of the holiness of God... You begin to think, I cannot, there's no way in which we can ever please a God like that by our, live, our life and lifestyle. So I had a view of God that didn't seem to fit with this, this idea, this doctrine that we're looking at today, that you can please God. I also had a view of myself that I think our initial reaction when, if you were, to, were told, listen, the call on your life is to live in such a way that God is pleased with you, I think most of you will recoil because you feel a sense of failure. You look at your day-to-day habits, your effort to live for him, and all you see is a catalogue of mishaps and failures and downright, sometimes just out-and-out rebellion against God. How can I please God? These are questions that I wrestled with. And then, of course, there's this, this more theological question, which I've already sort of brought up for you, which is that we believe that Christians are people who are justified, which means they're declared righteous by faith in Christ, not by the way you live. How does that sit with this teaching that we're called to live in such a way that God is pleased with us? Now, look at your Bibles. Turn, Look again at this verse 17, the beginning of the section we're looking at. David says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. He says three things there. He says, first of all, that God is testing the heart. Now, I don't think this is talking in any way about what Christians believe about an end-time judgment. I think it's talking about God's moment-by-moment examination of your heart and exposure to different circumstances and situations in life to bring out what's inside. 
He's testing your heart all of the time. He's interested. He's involved in the details of your life. He says, you test the heart and have pleasure. That means that God is not the God of the Greek philosophers. They told us that God was, because he's unchanging, he doesn't have anything that is like human emotions. He's not happy, he's not sad, he's just unchanging level. But the God of the Bible is a God who, who looks at his creation and responds, sometimes with anger, sometimes with delight. That's what David is picking up on here, that you test the heart and you have pleasure. You're a God with the capacity to delight. In what? That's the third thing he says, that you have pleasure in uprightness. It just means um, straightness. I don't mean in, in the way that we use it today in terms of sexuality and all that. It has to do with It was just a Hebrew way of expressing godliness, holiness, wanting to live a life that that obeys God. So he says this very bold statement, God, you test hearts and you have pleasure in uprightness, in holiness, in godliness. Now we know that Jesus is the only one who is truly righteous. And God said over him, Behold my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I have no problem with the idea that Christ can please God. But the problem that we need to wrestle with is whether you and I can live in such a way that he is pleased with you, that he finds delight in you, that he's happy with you. And that if you can resolve this in your mind, it can become the most powerful motivator for godliness and for godly living. Listen, I I want you to... Turn with me to a number of passages in the New Testament just so we can fill out what the Bible has to say about this. I really got so much help from a man um, called Wayne Grudem. He's one of the most exceptional living theologians, and he wrote a lot on this subject. And um, he says this is one of the most neglected teachings in the church, the idea that we're called to please God. And he, he, he listed a number of new, uh, texts from the New Testament, and we're just going to turn to a few of them. First of all, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Page 1670, we're going to look at page 71. He says in verse 32, he's speaking about marriage and singleness. He says, the reasons why he thinks it's better in some ways for you to remain single. Hard words if you really want to marry. But listen, here's, here's the reason that he gives. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That there are certain problems and troubles in life that only affect married people. And then he gets a little bit more specific. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. There it is. His entire passion and devotion as a single man, ideally, is this question. How can I please God? It's said again a little bit further down about the woman in verse 34. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. It's the same sense that he's putting across here. How can I live in such a way that God is pleased with my life and my lifestyle? How can I live so that God is happy 
with me. You can turn now to Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5 and verse 10, We'll read from verse 8. He says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to find out in life the ways of living that make God feel pleasure in your life. It couldn't be clearer, could it, when we look at these verses? Look at Philippians 4 and verse 18. Page 1714. He says, Paul's here talking about the, um, the giving of the church, so the generosity of one of the churches in giving to him um, for the sake of his missionary activity. And he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And in fact, we can push this further and say that Paul's entire motivation, and this is what I'm trying to get across to you guys today, his motivation to live for God and to live the sacrificial life he lived and the holy life he lived was that he might live in such a way that God is pleased with him, pleased with his pattern of lifestyle. So in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, he puts it this way. He says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. The word aim means ambition, aspiration, desire. He made it his ambition as an apostle of Jesus to live so that Jesus would be pleased with him. And he says it again in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. It's on page 1720. He says, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In fact, Paul goes a little bit further in Romans 12, verses that we looked at in real depth a couple of months back, where he says that in wanting to live for God, we're called to discern what's by testing what is pleasing to him. And it has this idea that you, almost through trial and error, but through growth in godliness, you begin to learn, you begin to develop Christian instincts about what God is pleased with. It's in Romans 12, verse 4. That it, the way Wayne Gruden puts it is that learning how to please God is almost like a skill that you can develop. That when you're first born into the Christian life, like any little baby, you're clumsy. You do things wrong without even realizing you're doing them wrong. I remember the first time Seth tried to feed himself um, because initially they, they don't realize that they can control their hands. So they're just sort of moving freely like this and their feet and everything. And the first time that they begin to control their hands and move it, they watch them with fascination. And eventually they can grab things and put food. But he was like, he grabbed some piece of food and he just watched it like this. Okay. <laughs> and eventually found his mouth. Now, when you're born into the Christian life, you become a Christian, it's a little bit like that. You're clumsy. You don't really know. Um, it, you, you, you begin to change, but you have 
still so much to learn about what it means to live a life that God is, is pleased with. But Paul's saying in Romans 12 that as we be, offer our bodies to him as living sacrifices and, and our minds are transformed, that we begin to develop instincts and we're changed so that we can have more wisdom and skill and knowledge about the kind of life and lifestyle that is pleasing to him. And friends, what I'm trying to put across to you is that this ought to be your passion and desire and ambition in life above everything else. Is it? Is it? We could ask this question, what is it that God finds pleasing? What is it that, that he looks at and finds delight in? Well, the New Testament tells us all kinds of things. Let me just list them. Presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, not causing brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. In other words, uh, giving them problems with their conscience, um, preaching the true gospel, supporting missionaries, obeying your parents, having pure motives, praying for the government. It's a strange one, isn't it? Supporting your parents financially, um, believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, worshiping him, doing good, sharing your things, doing God's will, keeping his commandments. Now, the reason I list all that is just to help you see that it's such a broad list. It covers, it really covers everything. The essence of it is, is this. God is pleased with obedience. He wants children who, who want to obey him. I know that you and I, we live in a battle that at one time you didn't know God. And, and in a sense, God was your enemy, but he was a good enemy because he wanted to come to convert you, to change your heart. But the minute you become a Christian, you make a new set of enemies. They're called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these enemies don't play fair. They want to kill you. They want to destroy you. They want to take your life. Your flesh rages with temptation. The world constantly bombards you. The devil speaks to you. He wants to trip you up. He wants to deceive you. So I know, and I'm not trying to make this sound easy, I know that living a godly life is not an easy thing. We're all in the same day-to-day -day struggles. But you need to have sufficient motive to live for God when you become a Christian. And this is part of it, that you want to please Him. Now, in putting across this idea, I know that a lot of you are going to have your kind of theological antenna up and, and, and begin to wrestle with this question. Isn't this just legalism? What do I mean by that? Because I know not all of you would un even understand what I mean by legalism. But think of it this way. The, the Christian message, we can actually see it in, very, in summary form in various places. But one of those places is Romans 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes some pretty shocking statements. And this is really the heart of what Christianity is about. He says in verse 23 that everyone, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So when God looks at the world, he doesn't see people who are in two camps, good and bad. He looks at the world and sees people who are, who are every one of us, complete wrecks without him. This is a, in, in stark contrast and contradiction to other religions which tell you that you can be good enough for God. But God doesn't say you can at all. The Bible says you absolutely cannot, which is why you need a way of being saved that doesn't involve you having to try and earn his favor, which is what he says in the next verse. He says, and you're justified, you're made righteous, you're declared righteous by his grace as a gift. 
So God goes round and, and he saves people by just saving them as a gift. He just says it's for free. You can belong to me. You can be my child. And there is no payment necessary. Why? Because Christ has done it already for you, he says. He says you're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. What he's saying is something that, that constantly shocks people when they come face to face with what Christianity is about. That without Christ, you're totally condemned, and with Christ, you're totally righteous, and that there's no middle ground, there's no gradient, there's no way in which you can improve your life or enter into a, a path of self-improvement to be acceptable to God. You're either damned, which is judged, you know, counted unworthy, unrighteous, or you're saved as a, as a grace gift from God. And then the Christian, in knowing this, in experiencing this, doesn't want to get into a mindset whereby they, they're, they're jumping back into the old way of thinking. I need to earn God, the righteousness that's, that's, that actually God's already given to me as a gift. And that's what legalism is. To try and earn your way into God's kingdom by living a righteous life. That's legalism. Trying to follow a bunch of laws. And what I want to ask you is, what's the difference between what I'm talking to you about today? I'm saying, listen, the, the chief motive, the, the number one motive to live for God is, is a desire to please him. What's the difference between that and legalism? Well, you can think of it when you begin to line up the characteristics of these two ways of living. The legalist is marked by a number of things, and I'll just summarize a few of them for you. They're marked by a sense of being bound, by being enslaved, with, with the law and indeed with their own sin. A legalist feels constantly heavy of heart. They feel miserable. I don't know if this would describe your experience of wanting to be godly, but a, legal, a legalist is somebody who feels miserable all the time about your spirituality because try and try as you may, you feel like you're, fa- you're failing. A legalist will feel proud when they're doing well, which is the flip side to that. But on the days when you have, you, you, you jump through all the hoops, you achieve everything you meant to, you feel proud, you're puffed up, you feel like you, you accomplished something. It's the way Jesus put it when he described the Pharisee coming into the temple and praying, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. He feels better than everyone else around him. That's what legalism does to you. It binds you, it makes you miserable and oppressed, or it inflates you and makes you proud. It also is something that you could call self-generated. In other words, it's totally about how hard you try. And it's full of fear. A person who, who is seeking to earn their way to God never, ever knows if they have done enough and lives under the constant cloud of fear of God. But not the good fear, the bad fear. The fear that condemns you, that accuses you, that says you will never be acceptable, ultimately. Now, contrast this with what I'm talking about here, which is Christian obedience that wants to please our Father in heaven. 
instead of being characterized by, by bondage, by being bound, by being shackled and frustrated and constrained, it's obedience that flows from freedom. This is how David puts it here. He says, in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And he says it the same with the people, that they've, those who are present here are offering freely. This is a complete opposite distinction to what it means to live the legalistic life. You are no longer feeling shackled and enchained in, your, in the law and in your sin and in frustration. Rather, your best intentions and motives are to want to live for God and you do it in freedom, out of joy, out of delight, out of pleasure. Paul puts it in Romans 8. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But that's not a freedom that then just, just freedom to live any which way that you want. It's not like you can just go and, and carry on sinning. He says a bit further, this is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the freedom the Christian experiences is a freedom to obey. A sense that they can obey. A sense that they have delight in obeying. It's not bondage, it's freedom. It's not misery, but it's rather joy. David puts it here, that I freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously. The person who doesn't know God's gift of salvation is going to be a miserable person in the end. There's no joy in religion. It depresses you. It cuts you down. It accuses you. It condemns you. It makes you feel like you're not good enough all of the time. But the obedience that flows out of the gospel, out of knowing that you're Christ's child, is an obedience that's full of delight and happiness and joy. Is that your experience? Instead of feeling proud, there's a humility. There's a humility that knows that, unlike the Pharisee who says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. The Christian, when he obeys and knows that he's living a life that is pleasing to God, isn't puffed up with pride because they sense that it was God's action in them in the first place. And instead of feeling like your work is self-generated, you know, there's that expression to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. A technical impossibility, right? That's what religion is. It's, tr it's trying to force you to do something you never could do. But the Christian knows that their life is empowered by God at a level and in a way that we can't fully explain, but he is enabling you to live in such a way that pleases him. Paul puts it so perfectly in Philippians 2 when he says that, My beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So on your best days, when you are 
more and more finding that Christ's image is being formed in you. You look and act and live more like Jesus. On your best days, you can only ever look to this and say, it's God who's working in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's making you the kind of person who pleases him, in other words. It's not self-generated, it's God-generated and empowered. And instead of being something that's full of fear, and I know that for some of you, you will have wrestled with a sense of the fear of God as something that intimidates you, a lack of assurance, a lack of knowing that you are God's child, that you are acceptable to him. That kind of a fear should have no place in the Christian life because our obedience isn't characterized by fretful, anxious worry, but it's characterized by love, by a passion for God that that controls you. David put it here when he said, he prays for the people. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, in verse 18, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. In other words, he's praying that very thing I've just been talking about, that God would do it in them. This isn't something they can generate themselves. This is God's power in them, changing them. And it's the same for you. And then he says, and direct their heart towards you. Now, David knew his Bible. And when he's praying a prayer like this, direct their heart towards you, I suspect that he's thinking about these verses in Deuteronomy 6. Famous ones where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Godliness was never meant to be an anxious and fretful and miserable experience in life. It was always meant to be the passion of your heart being expressed in love towards God. Love the Lord your God. So let me ask you, firstly, what's your view of God? And I'm talking about your day-to-day experience of Christian life here. Do you have the sense that he is pleased with you or that you indeed could please him? I don't think the New Testament, the Bible, would put before us commands to live for God's pleasure and then make it impossible to do it. But does your view and understanding of God enable you to have the sense that you can please him at all? Or do you feel like he's angry with you all of the time? What's your view of God? What's your view of yourself? When you look at yourself and you maybe see the marks of failure, frustration, do you think of yourself as a, as a failure? Do you look at yourself as a miserable case, unable to change, unable to live for God, unable to please Him? Well, if you're a Christian, don't you know what the Bible says about you?
says you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It says that God has so changed you that you are now, as a child of God, able to live in such a way that you bring pleasure to your Father in heaven. You might look at your life and see failure, but I think the default position of of what the Bible says about you is that you are not. And that God takes delight in every effort of obedience that you live for Him. That you give to Him and that you offer to Him and that you worship Him with. Let me read to you what this man Wayne Grudem had to say on this because I found it so helpful when I read it. It's fairly lengthy, so just listen to these words. He says, Sometimes Christians assume that they can do absolutely nothing in this life that will please God. They think that God counts even their faithful obedience as totally worthless, totally unworthy of His approval. Don't we find it so easy to go around and say, oh, we're just nothing but sinners? And I know that there's an aspect to that that's true, but... Aren't we falling short of what the Bible says about us? He says that assumption is surely wrong, both because the New Testament so frequently speaks about pleasing God and because such an assumption tends to deny the genuine goodness of the work of Christ that he's done in redeeming us and making us acceptable before him. So if you go around and saying, woe is me, I'm nothing, I'm totally worthless, it's almost a denial of the gospel. It's almost a denial of, what, of the power of Christ at work in your life. He says, I suspect that just as Satan accuses Christians and wants them to feel false guilt and false accusation, so he also seeks to keep them from the great joy of knowing the favor of God on their daily activities, of knowing that God is pleased with their obedience. In this way, he seeks to hinder our personal relationship with God, for the ability to take pleasure in another person is an essential component of any genuine personal relationship. That is, if you're to know anything of what it means to know God and to relate to God as a father and as a friend, then you have to understand that God is pleased with you. The New Testament talks about many of the blessings that come from living a life that pleases God. It talks about things like experiencing answered prayer, experiencing God's power through endurance and suffering. It talks about the blessings of of wealth that God can pour into those who themselves give generously to others. It talks about giving you greater responsibilities when you prove faithful with the little ones that God's given you. All these things are promises where God says, I've found favor, I I favor you, I'm pleased with you, let me do these things for you uh, because you have lived in such a way that pleases me. But I think, and this is where I want us to finish, I think that the greatest blessing that you can know as a Christian in living a life that consciously, deliberately, vigorously, 
and with determination is sought to, to please God is this. That you can experience the joy of his pleasure on you. And you should. That's what David was expressing that day. He saw the obedience of his own life and the obedience of the, the whole assembly. Rather than beating his chest and saying, Woe is me, we are nothing. He says, God, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're pleased with us today. And I want to suggest that that ought to be how you think about your relationship with God, because that's what the Bible says. If you don't have that experience, there are one of three reasons that are possible. Why not? The first is that you might not be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then God has not given you or brought you into his family and called you his child as yet. But I, I want to say, say to you, you can become a Christian today, this moment, by asking Jesus to save you. If you don't do that, then you can never experience God's fatherly pleasure over your life. Because you haven't been forgiven by the blood of Christ, covered, washed in the way that is true of Christians. That's one possibility. Another possibility, if you don't experience something of the pleasure of God on your life, is that you might be saved, but you know you're walking in deliberate, constant, set disobedience against God. I don't think it's possible to experience God's favor and delight if you are running away from Him. And the Bible just calls you to repent. You can change right now. Why delay? If you know you're his child, you know you've been running from him, you know his favor and pleasure is not on your life because of something or some pattern or, or whatever it is, just stop. Just come to him again today. Ask for forgiveness. But it may be this third thing, that you're... A Christian, you're saved, but you don't understand your position in Christ. You don't understand the delight that God as your Father has on you as his child. Let me read to you again from what this man Wayne Grudem has to say on this. Listen to these words. He says, It seems to me that these verses on pleasing God should encourage us to think that our Heavenly Father is actually pleased with us at this very moment. He takes pleasure in the good work that He's done in us through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when He sees you being obedient, He's happy with the work He's done in your life. He takes pleasure in His creation, doesn't He? He takes pleasure in the way you're changing because it's His work in you. He takes pleasure in our sincere desire to obey Him. He takes pleasure in the increasing manifestation of His own character in our lives. He takes pleasure in the acts of obedience that we daily offer to Him as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He takes pleasure that like John's readers, we can say, we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That ought to be what every Christian can say. 
we do what pleases him. We know our Father's smile. We know his delight. We know his joy on us as an experienced reality on a day-to-day basis because we are living for him. Not perfectly, not fully, not completely, not without fault, but sincerely and by the power of the Spirit and through Jesus. We know that when Jesus told his parables, he told one about servants being assessed on the last day and the judge saying, well done, good and faithful servant. What I'm suggesting to you is that as a Christian, I think you can know something of God's well done every day that you live for him. As an experienced reality as a motivating power and force. 